0: Hi, I'm Dr. Steve Elias, and welcome to another podcast by Vein Magazine, also known as Vein Specialists Sitting Around Talking, Having Drinks. In this podcast, we speak to three giants in the vein world: Peter Glavitsky, Peter Lawrence, and Mark Meisner. They speak about the need for guidelines, the need to revise guidelines and the impact these guidelines have in helping patients get the correct care by practicing physicians. Take a listen. Welcome everybody once again to the Vein Magazine podcast, or better known as Vein Specialists Sitting Around Talking, Having Drinks. Uh, today, we're at the American Venus Forum annual meeting. And uh, with us is uh, Peter Lawrence from UCLA, Peter Glavitsky from uh, the Mayo Clinic, and Mark Meisner from the entire world, because he is the world's best known vein specialist. Is this true, Mark Meisner?
1: I have no response to that, Steve, because that clearly is not true. (laughs) Okay. Can you tell me what you're drinking? Forget about... uh I'm drinking a Mission Hills IPA, which to my mind is Hoppy enough. The IBUs are good, but not enough citrus in it. Okay.
0: I'll probably get sued by the beer company. You can company. put a lime or a lemon in there, and you'll get more citrus. Yeah,
1: but it's it's a quality beer. I would I would recommend it to the readers of Vane Magazine.
0: Thank you. The two Peters, are you drinking the same beer?
2: No, actually, you're in California, and so we're drinking uh, a Mexican beer, Modelo oh, yeah, Draft, yeah. which is a, one, of, one of the great... Uh, Mexican beers, there are about five of them, and this is one of the best, on draft. And Peter Glavitsky, how
3: is that beer? The the beer is excellent. It's a little bit similar to Corona, and uh, tastes very good. Now, I don't understand about
0: Mexican beers. They say, don't drink the water in Mexico. Isn't beer made with water? Is the what? They they say don't drink the the water in Mexico, and you're drinking beer that's made with water from Mexico. So, Steve, are you concerned with any GI complications here, Peter?
3: I'm not concerned.
0: You are are missing the history of beer, (laughs) (laughs) which, you know,
1: beer is single handedly responsible for saving the world from destruction because during the cholera epidemic in Europe, um, the water was unsafe to drink, um, but the beer was safe to drink. Why is that, Mark? Um, because it's fermented and processed, and it's got alcohol in it. Okay, so then I'm not
0: worried. During the cholera epidemic in Europe, the, the, the beer was what you drank. All right, then Peter Govitzky, you can drink the beer and not worry about your GI
2: tract. That's exactly what <laughs> I... Okay. The Mexican beer has alcohol. It's just like prepping a leg. That's We're just true. prepping okay. our GI tract. All
0: right. And that's so that's I'm why waiting. you don't
2: have to worry about the... The, the water that's safe to drink in Mexico. All right. And I'm drinking Angels Envy. I don't know what Angels Envy, Angels
0: actually envy, but whatever it is, I'm drinking it. It's a uh, whiskey, a bourbon type of rye whiskey. And uh, I'm, beer is my second choice, but whiskey is always my first well, choice. You know, whiskey is the Close.
1: very best way of ruining good beer because I know. you essentially just take beer and distill it and get whiskey. That's exactly um, what you
0: do. And uh, you're right. Yeah. So it takes a lot of beer to make a little bit of whiskey. Yeah. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, it takes three vein specialists to do a good job writing new guidelines for the care of varicose veins. And that's why we're here today. We have three people that are on the SVS AVF committee to write the, or rewrite the guidelines for um, the care of patients with uh, varicose veins. So first of all, why do we need new guidelines? And let's throw it to Peter Glavitsky don't we already know what, it, what we need to do to
3: take care of varicose veins, Peter? I think we have an idea of how to take care of varicose veins, but it's uh, really time to write new guidelines. The uh, last guidelines we wrote were published in uh, 2011, so that covered the literature until about uh, two th- the end of 2009. Uh, a lot has happened since that time. New evidence emerged new uh, uh, treatment modalities were introduced, and uh, independent of the progress, every clinical practice guideline has to be rewritten every five years. Every five years, you say. All right.
0: So, Peter Lawrence, what are some of the the new things we need to address in the guidelines?
2: Well, I think that uh, we need to both respond to the MedCAC report, which was done by CMS, and has a big impact on reimbursement. And there were several issues there that I think many of us disagreed with. There were the conclusion of the MedCAC, one of them being the, the optimal way of uh, imaging and uh, the conclusion that duplex ultrasound uh, was not established as the best way to image veins. And you know, all of us, I think, believe that that's the case. So there needs to be, the guidelines need to really address that issue and look at the literature. The second is that since 2011, there's been the introduction of uh, non-thermal as well as thermal techniques to close veins. And I think that that is a second issue. And then the third one is that we see many physicians who are considered vein specialists and ablate the perforator vein without any other vein being ablated in the extremity. So I think the role of certain locations, particularly perforators, are the other the third thing that need to be addressed in the guidelines. All right, good. Now, Mark, when we first started this, and
0: I'm on, on this committee as well, what struck me was that there is actually a process by which people need to evaluate the literature and the data that's available when you're writing guidelines. There's a... Uh, people have spoken about, and, and Guyad and stuff has spoken about that, and I, I've, I had a little bit of trouble getting my, my arms around what we need to know when we write guidelines. Can you give like a... The Idiot's Guide to What You Need to Know When You Begin to Write Guidelines. In other words, what what are the guidelines to writing guidelines? The guidelines to writing guidelines were part of the
1: Medicare Improvement for Patients and Physicians Act in 2008 that authorized the Institute of Medicine to develop guidelines for writing guidelines. That is a document that's out there. It's a very good document. It's very long. But the executive summary is fairly short, um, and you can read that and come away with what you need. And and Peter already mentioned one of them, which is that trustworthy guidelines need to be updated every five years because new information, new data, new evidence comes along. Practice patterns change, so they need to be updated. But there's actually eight elements of it that need to be included in trustworthy guidelines. And essentially that establishes the process. And the process is first of all, coming up with the panel that's going to do the guidelines and there's criteria for that. Any guideline should include all stakeholders in the guideline, whether you're a vascular surgeon, radiologist, phlebologist in the community, it should include all stakeholders. It should include a methodologist always to help you evaluate the data.
0: Optimally, it would include patients as well, although that's a bigger hurdle. So wait a second. So the guidelines or the suggestion is that you include patients when you're writing guidelines? Yes, because the, the guideline model that's been adopted, which is the
1: grade approach to grading evidence, grade one guidelines don't really require a lot of thought. Every informed patient would choose that. But grade two guidelines, different patients may choose different approaches. And that's where the patient input is valuable. So that's one of the standards is the composition of the committee. The second is that every guideline should be based on a systematic review of the literature. It may not be strong enough to do a meta-analysis on, Uh but the literature should be systematically reviewed. and, And sort of my takeaway from that, which may or may not be true, is that if you can't generate a data table from it showing the outcome and the results, it probably shouldn't be in a guideline. You ought to be able to do that. Then the third essential component is grading the evidence. The Society of Astral Surgery, as well as most most organizations throughout the year, throughout the world, have chosen the grade approach to, to doing that. So you grade the evidence. And the fourth component is writing it and then having external review of it. And I, and I missed the second component, which is developing the questions, which is Probably the most important thing yeah.
0: is developing a reasonable question. For no, so the questions to ask, first of all, I want to ask Peter Golvitsky, the original guidelines, the ones that were five years ago or whatever, a little more than that. Did those follow the approach that Mark just outlined or or this approach
3: came into into being after those guidelines are written? I think this this so-called. PICO guidelines or PICO, PICO technique to develop a guideline came after uh, 2010 when we really wrote the guidelines, but the guidelines were, had a lot of the components of currently needed guidelines. Very specifically, we had uh, explicit and transparent questions that we posed, and we used the uh, appropriate evaluation when we graded the evidence, the level of evidence, and the strength of recommendations. There are additional components that we will be very careful to include into the new guidelines, and very specifically, the transparent representation of the data that we collect. And that's what Mark was referring to, the data table. And that really just makes it transparent to everyone who reads the guidelines what the literature offers in regard to the evaluation or the treatment that we recommend.
0: Now, Peter Lawrence, I want to push you a little bit. You mentioned earlier that MedCAC is one of the reasons why we need, they questioned what, what we were saying and that we didn't have evidence for various things. But uh, I, I really want to push you a little bit. Is our audience MedCAC that we're playing to? Or are we playing to the... Practicing physician to give them real guidelines. And then MedCAT can come in secondarily, but there are people out there who want to know oh, I got this patient has this problem. What do the guidelines tell me
2: I should consider doing? What well, audience th- yeah. are we playing to? Well, I think to both, but most importantly, to the patient. I think Mark's talk today about being patient focused, that's always the best approach to use. And what is in the best interest of patients? but guidelines require or are followed or used by well-intentioned patients or well-intentioned physicians, physicians physicians who want to do the right thing. And the reason that the MedCAC comes in is because they also have a huge impact on reimbursement because many people follow the CMS guidelines and they're based on MedCAC. So if they come to conclusions which are felt to be by most people practicing, inappropriate, then I think that uh, you can be misled or they can be misled. The challenge of MedCAC is that having sat on that for six years, and particularly on the Venus MedCAC, is that the group that does the research is given some limits. And they were told, as I understand it, because I got all the data that they provided to the MedCAC committee, was that they only would consider prospective studies less than 10 years with more than 500 patients. And as we all know, things like duplex ultrasound was developed and established the standard of care well before that. So there are a lot of changes that are needed in the MedCAC decision in summary, which happened, as you probably know, because you're involved in it over a period of six hours. Yeah. And six hours made decisions that probably should have been done over a year with several meetings.
0: So, I mean, this is what we're, we're up against. But Mark, you mentioned, what are the, the questions, you said the first thing to come up with is the questions to be answered when you're writing guidelines. and be, be, for, for all three of you, what do you think some of the questions are that we should be asking so that we can answer those questions to help the practicing physician and, as Peter said, the MedCAC people understand what it takes to manage patients with a varicose vein disease? What are some of the, so you don't have to name all of them, I'm going to ask the other, P- to Peter, is what they think.
1: You know, and, and to just start with Peter's comments is it's exactly right because part of the thing for trustworthy guidelines, which I'm surprised MedCac didn't realize, is you know having all stakeholders involved in the systematic review, and, and that was part of the problem with the MedCac systematic review. It was done by people with no knowledge of venous disease, with no clinical input whatsoever, and not that. As clinicians, we can do the methodology of it, but we can guide it. Mm-hmm. And to not have clinical input in a systematic review is, is just not appropriate. You know, the SPS and the ABF have used the Mayo Group to do their statistical part of it, but they have always offered, if there was an interested panel member, which I participated in it for the thrombolytic guidelines, to be part of this, the systematic review and actually review the evidence with them which I think is very valuable. And I think the Mayo Group recognizes that some clinical input is required. So I think that's part of the problem with the MedCAC process. But to answer your question directly, I I think we need to look at what's been developed since 2011 when the last guidelines came along. Probably the biggest thing in superficial venous disease is the non-thermal technologies. Those need to be addressed. Unfortunately, a lot of the data is not real strong to support them. But I think if you follow the guideline process on what raises or lowers the degree of confidence in the estimate of the of effect for those guidelines, we can confidently recommend non thermal technologies in an evidence based fashion that will influence, I think, both patients, physicians, as well as payers. Um, and really, that's our role is to interpret the data in light of uh, lend some clinical credibility to what evidence is out there. So I think that's a big one in the 2011, is what is the role of of, non-thermal, non-tumescent technologies um, in that? I think there's other things like, um, I think a big question is what is the role of compression after endovenous ablation? And I think there's been some evidence that's come along since 2011. I think the management of complications, particularly um, thrombus extension at the saphenol junction, not a lot of data. But that can be addressed. Um, and those are some of the three of the important questions, as well as I think Peter's question is important, too. Is, is duplex ultrasound the, the evidence-based standard of care for the evaluation of venous
0: disease? And I, I mean, this to me with the duplex ultrasound kind of like blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, Mark, you've used the thing before about you don't need a randomized uh, controlled trial to say the parachutes, you know, yeah. a good thing or not when you're jumping out of an airplane. I mean, it's like we know already duplex ultrasound is, but how are we going to answer this question? Is there not data that duplex ultrasound is the gold standard? for? Well, there's
2: a lot of data, but if you're restricted in doing the systematic review to the last 10 years and much of the data was developed 15 to 30 years ago, then you're going to miss it in a 10-year review. So it all has to do with the budget and how much, if they had been able to go back 20 or 30 years, I think they would have come to the conclusion that duplex ultrasound was the best diagnostic technique and was appropriate today. So it all of it has to do with the restrictions or the limitations in doing the systematic review. And not only that, that, that question
1: was not asked appropriately, because again, and, and Peter mentioned the PICO format of patient's intervention, comparator, and outcomes that question should have been asked is in patients with symptomatic venous disease, acute deep venous thrombosis, anything else, is duplex ultrasound more accurate than X comparator in the diagnosis? And what's the X comparator? Is it venography? Is it CT venography? And there's virtually no data to suggest that anything is better than duplex ultrasound. So it's not only a problem that they didn't look far enough back, but the questions weren't formatted appropriately.
2: I just also add to that that the people sitting on the MedCAC committee who voted—I was the there were two clinicians who took care of patients, and one was Tony Camarado, who was invited as a guest. So his actually his votes were counted separately from the rest. I was the only person who took care of venous disease. These were well-intentioned people. But none of them had taken care of patients with venous disease, and so it's not surprising that their decisions were not particularly appropriate or relevant because they had no background in venous disease management. All right. So, so two
0: things. The first thing is that the two Peters, Glavitsky and uh, Lawrence, have finished their beer totally already. We're going to get them another Modelo beer, and Meisner is nursing his beer. That's. His- that's his fourth beer. This was there for, yeah, right. It's his second beer. So, so we're getting a refill for the two, the two Peters, but I really want to, like, as much as we want to, like, focus on the MedCAC people, I really want to focus on the guidelines really are for the practicing physician. For the physician who's taking care of patients and stuff, they really look to this. They look to this not just for guidance in a particular patient, but they look to it for to cover themselves when they're treating a patient and they're concerned that people are gonna say, I'm doing the wrong thing, and they look to the guidelines and say, no, the guidelines tell me this. So how does, Peter Glavitsky, how does a practicing physician utilize the guidelines that, that we're going to be writing? In other words, how would you say to them, here are the guidelines, here's
3: what you can do with these guidelines. Well, I think you bring up an excellent point. What is the goal of a guideline? Is the goal of a guideline to uh, decide on reimbursement? Is the goal of the guidelines to protect the, the physician? No. I think the guideline should have one major goal in mind. Deliver the best care to our patients. That is our primary goal. And any guideline should be part of the decision making of what is the type of test that we order and what is the uh, uh, treatment that we offer to our patient. So a guideline should be used by the physician and by the patient, but a guideline should be a major tool to determine the best care together with the physician's clinical experience and judgment together with the patient's values and preferences, together with the most cost-effective and affordable treatment, and all this is going to ultimately yeah. decide the best treatment for the patient. Mark, have the guidelines ever been abused by practicing
0: physicians? Can practicing physicians abuse the guidelines? Can they use it to a unfair Advantage in terms of trying to treat patients when they should not be treating patients?
1: Well, I, I don't know the answer to that, Steve. It probably has happened. But you've got to start from sort of what you implied, that the average physician is well-meaning and wants to do the right thing. And, and I think that's true. 95 98% of physicians want to do the right thing to take care of patients. And just like your question, is this directed towards medcac this isn't directed towards the important very important but the people who are going to abuse the guidelines these are really directed towards
2: physicians who want to do the right thing to take care of patients guidelines are important for ethical well-intentioned physicians and they're going to be potentially abused by others or or ignored is more likely but they're really intended for people who want to do the right thing for their patients. So, Peter Lars, does
0: industry have any role in giving us any information when we're writing the
2: guidelines? Well, I don't think industry should have a direct input, but there are industry studies or supported studies, which are good studies. So, uh, the, in reviewing the, the systematic review, uh, not all, but there are industry-sponsored studies, which are very well uh, conducted, and industry obviously has a lot more money than societies or individuals, so they have the potential to do excellent studies. I think that the the key is so that industry is both not in the room uh, influencing or writing the studies, number one, and that the people who are writing the studies aren't influenced by industry, that they fully disclose their connections to industry. And the other thing is that you you there's no reason to exclude people who have a relationship with industry. It just has to be disclosed and balanced with people who don't have a connection. Yeah. But industry, we're not, I don't think, should be in an antagonistic relationship with industry because it's it's critical to us having good devices and developing good care. And as was pointed out in Mark's lecture today, Right now, they're very involved in training physicians in the use of devices. So until we have another system, they're a very important role uh, in clinical care. Yeah. Just not sitting in the room while the guidelines are being no, written. And they're,
0: and they're not sitting in the room. But Peter Glavitsky, t- take us through just so the, the, the listeners and, and, and the readers understand. So logistically, what, what happens? You, you got us all together. The, all of you got us all together the people who are, who are writing this, and give us the steps. You kind of, you set the stage, and who gets what roles? In other words, who's, writing, who's addressing one issue, another issue? Just take, take everybody through, because I want them to understand that guidelines are not a willy-nilly couple of, as Mark says, bogsat, bunch of old guys sitting around talking, just saying like, like, uh, like the four of us, It actually is is a real, real process. It takes a lot of work. Just kind of physically, take us through. You you got us together. What are we going to talk about first, the next meeting, second,
3: third, fourth? Well, I I think you bring up a very good point. Putting together an expert committee is the most important to me. A panel of experts who are experts in uh, the uh, topic of the guidelines. The second step is really discuss and agree on explicit and transparent questions. Once we have the questions, then we actually decide and divide the guidelines to a different group of people who are going to work out the guidelines based on topics and uh, grade them. And then uh, I think we all kind of have regular phone conferences where we where we debate the grading and answer questions or answer comments. And uh, like this, the entire committee is involved in the final decision-making.
0: How long do you think it's going to take? It's going to take, general, going the, to the, the take the about a
3: year to a year and a half to write the uh, varicose vein Guidelines because we have to have first a, uh, uh, the appropriate questions for the systematic reviews to have a, a good set of guidelines, we need systematic reviews or data tables for each questions that we ask. That takes time. I would say it's about a year, year and a half. What do you think? What do you think, Peter Lawrence? Yeah. We're told that it will take for the systematic review
2: about four months. And then after that, uh, we'll do the work at the committee. And then it has to go out to public or to, to review by professionals. Who get a chance to have input. So I think a year to a year and a half. One of the things is to add to what Peter said is that one of the things, and I this is not my own personal learning experience, but the doc committee, which Peter chaired, and now Tom so, Forbes okay, so chaired, is it? You just, you just use an
0: acronym, which is, a, doc is doc a document
2: means. and reviews them for the SVS and often for the AVF, that they've encountered a situation where. The practice guidelines are so comprehensive that they're almost unreadable. Right. I and they answer question. too many questions and ask too many questions. And they get to be more than 100 pages. And I think what we're our goal is is to address three to five really important points. And if we try to write a textbook on varicose veins, it will not become a good practice guideline. So... Our goal is to limit it in scope and answer three or four critical questions.
0: Now, Mark, are you good with that? Three or four critical questions or five questions that the practicing physician, when he sees a patient with varicose veins, needs to answer. He said, okay, I got someone with varicose veins. How am I going to treat them? Okay, and here are the five questions I need to ask myself and go to the guidelines and say, the guidelines tell me this, this, and this. You know, in general, I think of a simplistic, practical approach rather than a bombastic, scholastic approach that, as Peter said, you got to read through 100 pages to find out what the hell to do with the patient. Is our goal, should our goal also be to make it as simple as possible for the overall practicing physician?
1: Well, I think the goal should always be to make it as simple as possible. But I think we all realize as practicing physicians, that we go to multiple sources for our information. And I think it's important to discern, you know, there's a difference between expert opinion, sort of best practices, standard of care, which is important. You know, one of the recommendations, which I, I often cite as an example in the original varicose vape guidelines is every patient should have a SEEP a designation, right. which is certainly very true. But that belongs in an expert opinion sort of piece. And I, and I think for, if you're looking for that comprehensive of expert opinion, you go to like the Handbook of Venus Disorders, uh-huh. which does a very nice job of putting it all in one place. But then the practice guidelines need to be things that are really based on evidence and data and not expert opinion. And I don't think there are a lot of questions that can be answered with data. And, and so I do think that every, th- every question we ask ought to be answered with the data and then we should look to other important sources like the handbook and things to answer those questions about what well-meaning physicians consider the standard of care but isn't
0: necessarily supported by data. All right, so in conclusion, I'm one to ask the three of you. I mean, all three of you have treated veins for a long time. Why do we need to go through all this? Can't the three of you just come up with... Here's what you do, don't you guys know enough? Why do we need to go to the literature? Why do we need literature, Peter Glavitsky? If I asked you, Peter, I have a a 42 year old patient has varicose veins and you know, the woman is like, she stands all day. She works as a waitress. She has a saphenous vein incompetence.
3: Couldn't you tell me what to do? Do you need the literature? Do I need guidelines? I think we absolutely need guidelines. We need evidence. We need evidence to support our expert opinion. And I think that is a combination of clinical experience and evidence-based clinical practice guidelines that will deliver the best care to our patients. So I think the best thing we can do is put together our evidence-based guidelines and have that available to our physicians who will then make the final decision based on their experience and the patient's values and preferences. All right, good.
2: So, Peter, uh, Lawrence, you have something to say? Well, I think we need guidelines, not necessarily for the person who's been doing it for 30 or 40 years, but again, the well-intentioned clinician who wants some advice and is looking to do the right thing for patients. So those of us who are very experienced might occasionally be surprised by something in the practice guidelines, but unlikely but the person who's inexperienced is going to be the person who benefits most greatly from the practice guidelines.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a good point. So we have a lot of work to do on the guidelines, but it's now Thursday night at the American Venus Forum meeting, and the two Peters have a half a glass of beer to finish, and Mark is nursing his beer, and I'm drinking my whiskey also. So guidelines are important for sure, and I want everybody to understand that there's a significant amount of work that goes into writing them. They're not just taken very lightly. And that's why they are so important. And that's why MedCAC looks at these guidelines. Practitioners look at these guidelines and societies look at these guidelines. And it's not an easy process. And it's a very rigorous process. And those are things that people can hang their hats on. Anyone have anything
2: left to say before we say... One last thing is that also practice guidelines, although the intent is not... Uh, established standards, when people vary so much from what is in practice guidelines, there can be a benchmarking, and I think it does have a threat to those who are doing very inappropriate care. They're out of the practice guidelines. So uh, an institution, a hospital, a society, if someone varies so much repeatedly from practice guidelines, it can become a way to either stop that practice or at least give them feedback about how inappropriate it is.
0: and, And we're definitely dealing with that issue of overuse and abuse in the varicose
3: vein world. Again, I think I would finish emphasizing how important the guidelines are, but I would finish with a quote of William Mayo, who said that the best interest of the patient is the only interest that should be considered. Right. And that's what the guidelines are geared for. We're all going to finish our drinks right now. So
0: we thank you for being part of the uh, podcast on varicose vein guidelines. And uh, maybe in a year or so, we'll come with a recap of what we came up with in a succinct way about what our guidelines are to take care of patients with varicose veins. So thank all of you for being here. And let's finish our drinks. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. We try at Vane Magazine to bring you what we think are the important topics in the Vane world. We'd love to have your thoughts on the Vane Magazine podcast. Please review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just search for Vane Magazine with Dr. Steve Elias. Thanks, and we'll see you on the next podcast.